Welcome to In The Trenches, where entrepreneurs, artists, writers, designers, inventors, warriors, and leaders share their stories of doing the hard, creative work that impacts all of our lives. Let the journey inspire you to do something worthwhile, build something bold, and create your life's work. And now, your host, Tom Morgus. Hey everyone, welcome back to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm your host, Tom Morgus, and today I have a very special guest, Garrett Gunderson, who's done some remarkable things in the personal finance space. We'll be digging into that a little bit later today. But, but here's the quick bio on Garrett. Garrett is the chief wealth architect at Wealth Factory and author of the New York Times bestseller, Killing Sacred Cows. Wealth Factory helps entrepreneurs optimize cash flow, streamline their finances, and keep more of their hard-earned money so they can make more powerful investments in their best wealth creator, their business. And Garrett has appeared multiple times on ABC News, Now, Your World with Neil Cavuda on Fox, CNBC's Squawk on the Street, and more. And his first firm made the Inc. 500. Uh, so you can find out a lot more about him at wealthfactory.com. And of course, we'll get to that at the end of this in terms of like where you guys should go check out Garrett and find out more about him. But Garrett, first and foremost, thanks a lot for just being on the show with us today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this, Tom. Uh, it was good. We, we already had a little bit of a conversation. I think we're going to dive into some good stuff here. And yeah. I mean, you said personal finance. I don't want people to get scared away because I'm bringing energy and practical things they can put on the ground within 24 hours. I'm not asking anyone to cut back or scrimp or get blisters on their fingers from pinching pennies. This is going to be good financial sound advice that improves your life today, not 30 years from now. Yeah, it will improve your life in the future. We don't have to wait for 30 years to have this stuff impact you. So what you're saying is you're not going to tell me to, uh, to turn that large cup of coffee into a small cup of coffee. And that's how I'm going to say for the future. I, everyone that I've ever interviewed worth tens of millions of dollars. They never got there because they stopped drinking coffee. It's <laughs> never once happened. So yeah. Okay. Well, we're t- I, I do have to ahead. tell you the first time I met David Bach, who wrote the latte factor inside of the book, Joe Polish says, Hey David, Garrett thinks your latte factor is stupid. I'm like, awesome. I mean, David and I actually hit it off afterwards, but uh, you know, nothing like a friend throwing you under the bus right at the beginning. Well, let's talk about that real quick because here, it's yeah. interesting because it's, it's, it's almost like a, I don't know if it's like almost like a philosophical debate because there's value in the idea of like cutting back on these unnecessary expenses, even yes. in incremental amounts. So I don't think that's wrong by nature, but I agree with you. Like I'm of the mindset, I'm, I'm biased at least. I think that, yeah, I'm not going to make a lot of money doing that. But there's probably still some sound reason to it. I'm, I'm curious where you, what your take is on literally that, that specific topic. All right, here's the topic. I'll give the framework. There's sure. four types of expenses. The first type of expense is a destructive expense. Destructive expenses is when we borrow to consume something that doesn't have an asset or doesn't create cash flow. So we take a trip. We don't have the money for it. If we borrow to do that, we come home from the trip, but the debt stays. That's a destructive expense. For me, should I think a destructive expense would be like, when I go to a hotel room and they have $10 candy bars, I don't want to eat candy. I want to be fit. But damn, sometimes I'm hungry in the middle of the night. That's a destructive expense because I feel bad about myself. It didn't help me out in any way. So it's, it's kind of situational. But there's three other types of expenses. One is a lifestyle expense. Lifestyle expenses are how we enjoy life, how we utilize our money. But the rule is you pay cash for lifestyle expenses, never borrow to consume. Then the third type of expense is a protective expense. Protective expenses, the highly affluent, really wealthy people always understand this. The right corporate structure, asset protection, lots of liquidity, transferring and managing risk through insurance. That's important. And some people neglect that simply because they think it's purely a cost. 
but then they end up losing wealth when mistakes or mishaps or financial surprises come their way. And then the fourth one is the game changer. It's a productive expense. Productive expenses are investing in our education that allows us to produce more, investing in good marketing, investing in A-teamers in our business, building a good financial team to support us to keep more of what we make. Those are all productive expenses. You put in a dollar, more than a dollar comes out. We should always seek to increase those. And yeah, the latte factor, if someone's broke and they're buying lattes every day, it would be a destructive expense. But if someone's wealthy and they enjoy lattes, they should continue to enjoy their lattes. And where David and I end up talking, he said, hey, for some of the people I speak to, that means get rid of the third home you haven't been to for a year. And I was like, cool. I totally know what he's saying there. And we, we found some common ground. I love this. Okay. I don't know if I've ever actually seen it broken down this way. And, and I think it's a good, good dichotomy because, so here's a, I'm sure you come across as a lot, you know, rich dad, poor dad, right? And, and I don't know if you have any. I just built a product for rich dad, poor. I just, I just filmed an entire course for them coming out oh. shortly. Boom. Okay. So, you know, that's like the thing that was like, and I think I read that in college. So yeah, I did too, man. It rocked my world when I read it too. Changed my, changed how I viewed things. It's seriously, you look back and you're like, man, well, that's so simple. But it's like, it's crazy because it's like the most basic foundational stuff I don't think uh, is taught, unfortunately. I, I, right. I don't know. At least my experience, I was not taught that in high school. I don't know. It just, it's unfortunate. So then you get to, by the time in college, you know, and I'm going to a decent, decent college. I didn't actually learn that in college either. We, you know, we take economics and calculus and all this crazy engineering stuff. And I never actually understood, nobody ever talked about assets versus uh, liabilities. Right. You know, and you think about it in the grand scheme of life, that's probably a pretty important discussion. So looking at this, you know, you mentioned these, these kind of expenses. So I, I like this. This is very important because I think talking about that asset, that piece, I think I do. I've always been a proponent of taking out debt if it's going to make me money, whether it's like in real estate or something else where I have like a pretty, pretty good ROI or something like that. I know I'm going to get a return on this. And that's Can we how dive into that. I got, let's, I got let's, do, let's do it. Go for it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. First off, 99.99% of the population, they don't define debt properly, right? They mistakenly think it's one thing when it's not. If people were to simply draw a box right now and they drew a vertical line to separate it into two hemispheres, one on the left, one on the right, and then that's a balance sheet. On the left side, there's assets. On the right side, there's liabilities. Now, when we have more assets than liabilities, that's defined as equity. Some people might even call it net worth. But when we have more liabilities than assets, that's debt. So here's what's important to understand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just because we have a loan doesn't mean we have debt. What if I were to go buy a business right now for 200 grand that was actually worth 500,000, but I borrowed 200 grand? Yeah. I would actually be $300,000 in equity, but 99% of the population would tell me that I'm $200,000 in debt. Not true, I just acquired more equity, potentially more cash flow, so I think it's really important that we understand what debt really is because some people say avoid debt like the plague. But if you don't know what debt is and you think anytime you borrow, it's debt, it's just simply there's efficient loans and inefficient loans. So yeah. if we go back to the beginning, if you borrow to consume, yeah, that's debt because there's no asset attached to it. But if you borrow to produce, you have to be calculated and careful because you don't want to speculate with money that you borrowed that it could lose and now you still right. owe something. And that's where people went wrong during the run-up of the market in like 2004, 2005, 2006. They're like, cool, I'll refinance my home. I'll put it in a mutual fund. This thing's going to crush it. And then it gets annihilated in 2008, 2009, 2010, because it's not part of that individual's investor DNA. See, risk mm -hmm. is not mm -hmm. in the investment. Mm -hmm. Risk is in the investor. What kind of mm -hmm. investor are you? It shouldn't be, where should I invest? It should be, what would it take for me to be a better investor and investing in things that you know and that you understand? And if you don't, Stay away from it. 
people always ask, oh, is real estate a good investment? I'm like, for whom? For some people, it's horrible. They don't treat it well. They don't understand it. They don't analyze it. They don't know how to make money on the buy. They're not focused on the cash flow. They don't understand the tax ramifications. They don't have property managers. They yep. don't know how to do lease options yep. if the market changes yep. or fractionalizes. It. So we could go through all that. But there's other people that are brilliant at it. So when I was on uh, Kiyosaki's podcast, we talked about that. He was talking about, you know, 20 years ago, he's telling people to invest in real estate. Then they're buying crappy places in some remote area of New Mexico, lost all their money, and then they blamed him. But that's investor DNA. You know, it kind of comes back to like this, this thought I feel like has been percolating my brain for a while. Like there's a lot of like great ideas out there and like, it, or one sentence idea, you know, like you hear this, I, this thought or this idea and you're like, yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great thought. In, in real estate, like location, location, location. Okay. So I have to buy. And the, the thing is like, that's, yeah, there's, there's, there's true to that. But like, if you just take it at face value and then you go do it and you're like, Oh, I'm going to buy. And you don't actually understand the market. It like can totally backfire. So like, I think. And you're playing against pros. You're playing against right. people that that's their livelihood. Right. Right. Exactly. And I just think it's interesting though, that even with good advice, even if you are studying it, how, if you, I think if you don't understand it at a deeper level, this stuff can get really, obviously can get dangerous. I mean, obviously I think that's, that's what happened probably in the, the crash of, I don't know, 08, right? Uh, 07, 08, right. people were, were investing, but they weren't, not really, right? They were, or they were considering their, their, their primary residence as an investment, which I don't know, those kind of things like kind of bug me. I don't know, personally, it's, not, it's never made sense to me. Here's my entire, what I do every day, what I think about all the time and what my mission is, is 1 million entrepreneurs to economic independence. Economic independence is where you have enough investment income or entrepreneurial income, which is that income that comes in even if you don't show up to the office the next day to cover your expenses. Because once you get there, it means every dollar you earn is no longer encumbered by lifestyle. It could go towards building more assets, a huge advantage, like really a, a fast track, literally a fast track. So that's something that's critical for people to recognize and focus on is economic independence. And so if they're investing in things that aren't really investments because they don't produce cash flow. They actually mm -hmm. cost them money. That goes back to a very fundamental concept right at the beginning. But I also want to see kind of this framework that first off, people should look to boost their profits. You know, people are overpaying the government. They're overpaying insurance companies and investment companies. They're overpaying banks and financial institutions simply because they try to keep us in the dark. It's my job to make sure people see that differently so they can keep more of that money. Then, they should really strategically engineer wealth. I think that the unfortunate thing is that we've been trained, taught, and educated that we should invest early, we should invest always, we should invest often, and we should never question because one day, someday, in the long haul, it's going to work out. And that has devastated people. People mm -hmm. aren't getting ahead doing that. It's like, no. it, it's broken. And so what the real pro investors do is they stay in cash until the right opportunity comes. The yep. rookie investors always stay invested, even if it's not the right time to be there. And strategically engineering wealth is to automate your savings and be deliberate with your investing to build a really solid foundation and never speculate with money you can't afford to lose. If we look at the magazine covers and there's someone that just made it big as an angel investor or venture capitalist or launched a tech business, what we didn't hear about was the 999 others that got their ass kicked. But yep. you know what? You're okay doing that if you have your foundation handled. If you have economic independence, you can swing for the fences in life. And that's, that's a big thing. Okay. So this is interesting. So looking at that, and, and, and then I think we'll probably come back to the business aspect of things and people who are like trying to run their own businesses. But going back to like the basics then of this, like I guess for the person who is, I, I look at these, these expenses that you mentioned, would you say there's kind of a, there's a, a bit of a ladder here, like depending on kind of where you are, you know, financially, 
that you do want to just look at like minimizing the destructive expenses. That's where you'd focus. If you're like really trying to get by, then, you know, I don't know, like, I guess, is there like a path somebody knows, okay, this is kind of where I'm at in this, I don't know, this ladder or this, whatever yeah. it is. So like, I'm going to give, the, like I'm, yeah. I'm going to give two things when I'm going to give the formula of exactly why people lose money in investing. And if they think they have a money problem, why it's not actually a money problem and the deeper source of it. The second is I'm going to tell you and all the listeners how budgeting actually hurts people and destroys wealth instead of creates it. And what the automated structure that you should do that kind of goes to where you start. So those are the two things. The first one, let me give this equation because you mentioned earlier hey, some people go, they invest, but it's not really an investment and they end up losing and they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. So if you want more financial capital, some people can leverage financial capital, but if you leverage it by borrowing or getting a big loan on a piece of real estate, you don't know what you're doing, you can get your, you could just get eaten alive on that, right? But there's two more precious forms of capital that drive all of financial capital. The first one is mental capital. It's our ideas, knowledge, wisdom, systems, tools, all that kind of stuff. And we hear the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That ain't true in today's world because if you know nothing, you don't get to hang out with people. No one wants you around unless you're blood. Then I guess they're like, cool, we'll let you hang out. There's dumbass Johnny hanging out with us. He brings nothing to the table. But <laughs> mental capital is critical, right? But if we have just mental capital, we don't utilize it. The way we utilize it is through business. Business is that bridge to use our mental capital to serve others, solve problems, and create value. And when you focus on those three things, it creates exchange for people. So the next type of capital is relationship capital. People, networks, organizations, mentors, family, friends. So when we take ideas and impact people's lives, that's how we make money. It doesn't take money to make money. It takes ideas and relationships to make money. And if we manage and have effective relationships and we utilize our ideas and we have that bridge of business between the two, that's the multiplier. So if someone's sitting there with a bad financial situation, they either have the wrong information about how wealth and prosperity and business works, or they have the wrong relationships. And here's what I mean, you know, we all hear who we spend our time with matters, but who we don't spend our time with matters more. Because I've had a few bad relationships in my life cost me seven figures hmm. just because they weren't, they weren't good people or they didn't have the same values or they did things differently and they can absolutely tip the balance of having a hundred great relationships. One, when you hear one bad apple spoils the whole bunch, damn, that's a bad relationship. So take our mental capital, multiply it by a relationship capital. And this is the bridge of business is this, how do I impact more people or how do I impact people I'm, I'm impacting currently at a deeper level? And that's how financial capital comes around. So if we're buying real estate with no mental capital, no relationship capital, meaning we have no mentors, education, we have no property management companies. Yeah, we are in a risky, risky position. Take an advantage of too, right? I mean, totally. Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And then you mentioned this other thing. So is that the second thing you said was about budgeting and how that hurts people. So, okay. So, you know, walk me through that. Here's the first saying, and I would have everyone write this down. Read this. Remember this. No one shrinks their way to wealth. No one shrinks their way to wealth. And budgeting brings us into the greatest destroyer of wealth. The greatest destroyer of wealth is scarcity. No amount of luck, saving, discipline, rate of return, financial practices, any of that matters if we're in scarcity because scarcity destroys wealth. It's a, what I call a consumer condition where people look to take more value in the world than they give back to it. And dollars follow value creation. So if we want to make more money, we've got to create more value in a substantial way. So budgeting has us start eliminating 
cutting, getting in a constriction and restriction and reduction mindset. And our mindset matters because it's the vision of how we operate on a daily basis. So instead of budgeting, what I highly recommend everyone does is they set up a separate bank account from where they're currently banking if they have a business or a side hustle or if they have a personal account. They probably have both and set up a third account. Call it your wealth capture account. And instead of budgeting, just pay yourself first. Every time you take money from your business or your job and pay yourself personally, take your percentage off the top and put it in the separate account and you automate your savings. And as long as you do that, then you can live within the bounds of the rest of the money that's left over and do whatever you want as long as you don't borrow more than what you've made. And this is, it's kind of mystical and magical because here's the deal. A lot of people don't know how they would do that. Starting somewhere helps, like done is better than perfect, progress over perfection. But if you're overpaying taxes, which tons of people are, there's one easy way. If you have hidden fees and commissions with your investment, there's an easy way to get money in this account. If you have duplicate coverage or costs with insurance, and I can give case studies on this to help people understand how to do it, that's all money that can go in there without having to pinch pennies or scale back. It's simply automatically saving money. Now your mind's freed up to be productive, to think about what you could do to add value, not thinking about what you cut out, because it takes a long time. I, one time I said, all right, when I was writing Killing Sacred Cows, I was like, I'm gonna spend a day. And so I spent almost 10 hours finding all the ways I could cut expenses. And I cut expenses, I renegotiated my cable bill, I eliminated some you know, things we were paying for. And you know, it saved me a few hundred dollars a month. Then I thought, okay, now I'm gonna spend a day doing my highest, most productive things I could possibly do. I did a one day workshop that I ended up hosting. And we did six figures from that. I was like, that is so much more valuable than saving a couple hundred dollars a month. Now, it doesn't mean we overpay and that we're sloppy. It's just that we're going to emphasize the majority of our time on production instead of on restriction. Mm, that's great. I mean, it's really, I, I don't even know what else to say beyond after that because it hit the nail on the head. I mean, uh, just that idea, like I, I see that in my own life too. Like I'm cognizant of my expenses, but they take a backseat to the stuff that we're good at that my company's good at the way we can produce profit and if i keep doing that then i know the expenses will be fine like uh, you know it'll be or i don't know i, I guess that can be taken out of context and somebody could run rampant with their expenses but, and, but that's why if you if you take the first 18 percent that you pay yourself and put it in a separate account fine you have full permission to do exactly what you're talking about just make sure you paid yourself first 18 percent. there's a real reason for that yeah three percent because that. taxes Taxes are, you know, right now historically low because the average top bracket is 61.7% since 1913 and we're at 39.6. So you need to have some extra money if taxes go up in the future. And there is $20 trillion of debt in the United States. So I do think taxes could go up even if Trump lowers them in the short term. 3% for inflation, that stealth tax that erodes our purchasing power with our money. 3% for technological change because, hell, even homeless people have cell phones these days. I mean, it's crazy, the technology that we buy, right? Like, everybody's got a personal computer these days. I mean, you and I got special microphones on this thing today. I mean, there's just technology that advances as time goes on. And then another 3% for planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence are things break down, you have to replace it. You're not necessarily better off, but you better be prepared for them when they break down. Like our dishwasher. When we moved into our new home, we had a Viking dishwasher. It actually meant Vikings were licking the damn plates because they were never clean. I swear it was worthless, so we had to replace it. Our washer and dryer, we had to replace that because it wasn't nice enough for our new home. I mean, that's planned obsolescence. Things break down, they wear down, cars, whatever, you replace them. Another 3% for propensity to consume. Let me say that more easily. 
a luxury once enjoyed becomes a necessity. Dude, I've flown in the laydown seats now in first class. I don't if they're on any flight that I'm on, I'm paying the extra to get on the laydown seats. I can sleep, I'm comfortable, I get work done if I want. You know, I like nicer clothes, I like nicer restaurants. I definitely upgraded my taste in wine from the boxed wine I grew up on. You know, I mean it's like a luxury once enjoyed becomes a necessity. So we need three percent for the finer taste that we start to develop as time goes on. And the last three percent is actually setting up another account. And every time you hit the 15% mark, you add another 3% to a living wealthy account, which says you enjoy life along the way, go spend that guilt-free on whatever you wanna spend it on, because that's your reward. You've just saved 15% off the top. 3% for taxes, 3% for inflation, 3% for technological change, 3% for planned obsolescence, right? And 3% for propensity to consume. So you've got your 15%, take another 3%, and celebrate your wins, celebrate your victories. Go out and spend that money on, on whatever you want to spend it on. Not what other people think you should spend money on or what they value, but what you value. I call it value-based spending. You pay yourself first and then you do what you do after that, Tom. You just go, great, I'm gonna invest back into my business. I'm gonna go do the things I wanna do for leisure and fun because you know you're okay financially because you've saved this off the top. Yeah, so that's the party hardy account, huh? Totally, man. Party hardy. Like we, we've used it to host rock star parties where everybody dresses like it's the 80s. Like the band shows up and they actually think it's the 80s before they've even performed. And then they get <laughs> ultra done up like early 80s, like makeup style. We've done that several times. We, we've gone to Europe with that account. We've, uh, you know, I don't know. We've done a lot of fun stuff with that. Okay, so now this 18%, like I like how you broke down the percentages, 3% for each for taxes, inflation, tech change, yeah. obsolescence, propensity to consume, and then kind of creating that guilt-free kind of spending account. But um, 18% is this of like 18% of like your profits you should pay yeah, yourself? Not, not of your gross of your business, but what yeah. you're actually taking home, what you're actually sending to you personally. Interesting. Okay. I mean, doesn't hurt to take more than 18%. Man, if you could do it, like when I was single, I was putting like 45, 50% into that, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and I put more than 18 now, but also creating economic independence, I can put 100% of my new income because I have enough recurring revenue that I've created through intellectual property licensing was my main investing structure that's created enough to cover our lifestyle. With that happening, that means I have an entire company that's just my investing company. It's gotcha. really uniquely named Garrett Gunderson LLC. I really spent a lot of time figuring that one out. It's like my first business was called Garrett Gunderson's Car Care. So it's kind of nice that we have Wealth Factory and my other IP companies called Ripwater. I've gone a long way in the naming game than when I started. Sure. Okay. Well, okay. So this is an interesting, maybe, maybe a good segue too, because you mentioned you started a, a number of different companies. It sounds like, you, and this kind of comes back to that, that protective expense aspect, which Unfortunately, I think a lot of us neglect. I know I have for a long time and yeah. starting to kind of get caught up with it because it's just not the first priority for me if I'm trying to like bootstrap a business or, totally. or something. I'm not thinking about the entity or the protection. I just want to say, can I make money? And can I create profit? Can I create value? And then kind of trying to put these things in place afterwards. So one of the things that I thought about is like, like seeing people who do like a really good job of like uh, creating entities and keeping things separate. Is there like a certain number of like revenue or profit you should be doing before you really want to start thinking about that? Because I feel like I don't want to rush it. But like, you know, once I start getting to a point where I'm like, if I'm producing like X number of dollars, yeah, I probably want to have like distinct entities for different things. Whereas right now, I think in a lot of people's businesses that are doing probably under a million, they're probably not thinking of multiple entities at all. So I'm, I'm, I don't know, is there like a market there that you start thinking about? Or is there another way to think about this? Well, let's talk about that because yeah. 
you know, I think it's important to set up a corporation as soon as you start a business, just a corporation. Yep. An LLC, if it's going to be a partnership, that's a great tax structure. An LLC, if you have another partner and you can discriminate on who takes higher tax advantages or takes bigger distributions, a lot of flexibility. S-Corp, if you're just an individual that you have a cash cow business, you're taking all the income out of it, that's a good situation. C-Corporations or you know, some of your bigger, more substantial corporations or C-Corporations. But there's also an interesting strategy. Let's say that someone has a business, right? And then they have a business that spawns off something smaller. Like I'll just use an example of one of my clients, doctor, right? Seeing patients, but then has a supplement business. That supplement business is only doing 50 grand a year. We can actually set that supplement business up in a C corporation and you pay less tax on the first $50,000 of a C corporation than you do an LLC or an S corp. Mm-hmm. Now you'd end up paying more tax as it gets into the bigger dollars on a C corp, but that's a cool way to carve out and have a tax strategy and asset protection. So when I started, I just had, I had my company with partners and I had my own individual company, just two companies. But now I have my intellectual property company as my main holding company. It owns my interest in other companies and I have other companies based upon, is there a clear line of delineation or clear lines of liability that give me a reason to have those other companies? Mm. So yeah, just having a company is fine. And then when you start having multiple, you know, things happen within that one given company, then you might add something else. But look, as an intellectual property company, I can set that up in Wyoming, for example. And as long as they're not a Utah client where I live, I can avoid the Utah state tax by setting up as a specific type of trust inside of Wyoming. So Mm -hmm. awesome to have an intellectual property company there and then license to my other companies a fee to use the intellectual property. That means I pay less in tax because when you pay yourself W-2, you have to pay 15.3% self-employment tax on the first hundred and some thousand dollars. But if you're getting it as a 1099 or you own a real estate property that you're renting to your business, you can charge the highest possible rent there. That's a lower tax rate than when you're just paying yourself a salary. So it's when we get into tax considerations and liability considerations that we add the additional companies. But simplicity is key. It's fine just to have one and be at a million dollars for a lot of people. But if you're going to add real estate, you probably want to hold your real estate separately. If you're going to add another partnership, you probably want to own that separately, even if your main company owns the the smaller interest. Right. Okay. So now tell me about this, because I think another thing is like just the the idea of like putting this together or managing it or like, I don't know, it's like that might just be like, oh my God, like I don't want to, you know, setting up all these different entities, doing all that stuff. How simple is it these days? And what are like the, the, I guess, just like, you know, creating those entities, setting them up, making sure they're, you know, abiding by the bylaws or whatever of, of the, this structure, like, what does that look like? And I know that depends. It's a huge well, it's, it's 90% dependent upon how good of a legal team you have. Right. Cause you can go to legal zoom and have something and not really have anything. Right. Because if you're ever sued, who's there to help you or protect you? And was it set up properly? And did you do your corporate minutes or like the attorney that we have within our network that works with all of our clients, they have a compliance, you know, structure that makes sure that the annual meeting happens every year. They have a, a flow chart. Like, I meet with them once a quarter um, and I have a more complicated situation than most, but I don't find it to be complicated because we, I was more complicated 10 years ago when I didn't know, you know, what I was doing as much as I do now. I had hundred doors of real estate back then. I don't have nearly that much anymore because I've simplified and I only invest in things that are really aligned with who I am. So it's more the educational team that you have and the, and the attorneys that you have, can they speak your, your language? Are they in legalese that bores you to death? You know, 
like for me, an asset protection trust, a domestic one, then an intellectual property company, and then LLCs for my real estate, and then uh, uh, LLC for my wealth factory company that I own the interest with my, with my main corporation. It's actually pretty simple. Even though when you go offshore, count on 100 times more complicated if you try to protect your assets offshore. Way harder than doing it domestically. Okay, so for you, for example, so you've written a couple books and maybe we can talk about those in a second. You yeah. know, that book would fall under what, your, your intellectual property company? Or yeah. uh, what was that? Was that how, how's that structured for you? How do you do that? So I own it in my intellectual property, Ripwater. Okay. I license it to my firm, potentially, like Wealth Factory, um, if they want to distribute or sell it. And then all the licensing fees go into Ripwater. And then whatever it can do beyond that into Wealth Factory, Wealth Factory would keep. So I like having all my video structures, all my books. Like I like having licensing agreements with the entities that benefit from that. So I have What Would the Rockefellers Do as a new book. And I have two different firms, Optic Financial, Garda Financial, that have both licensed that book. Mm. Where they now utilize that with their clients. And I get a percentage that goes into my IP company. I don't own their company, which is nice because now I don't have to have ownership in their company, which now puts me in with their liabilities, filing right. extra tax stuff. I have one intellectual property licensing with Wealth Factory, Garda, Optic, and Wealth Labs, which is my individual consulting company. So I have four different licensing agreements. Plus, I have a new book coming out in 2018, licensing agreement with my co-author. I have a book coming out in 2019, licensing agreement with my co-author. Mm. That has simplified my life massively because it's just agreements instead of individual companies every time. Okay, interesting. So I like that the licensing idea. And then I think that's actually really pertinent to a lot of people probably listening because yeah. I think a lot of the listeners, myself included, create a lot of these kind of like intellectual property type items, mm -hmm. courses, books, et cetera. So how about now you mentioned like, oh, you, you license like this book to this company. Well, what about somebody who's like self-publishing, like, you know, doing it themselves, like my IP you know, is my self-publisher. Right. I mean, I, okay. you know, so, so like Ripwater, Ripwater published, uh, what would the Rockefellers do? Ripwater is the one that is contracted with Greenleaf, which did killing sacred cows. And then Ripwater actually licenses. I'm licensing with this guy, Nick, that I'm doing a book called five day weekend with. And once again, it's just a Ripwater licensing agreement. And then he has a, an agreement with the uh, book publisher as well. So where does somebody go to find out more about this, like this specific, uh, you know, as, area, this, this licensing? Because I think that's, I'd yeah. like to get into the weeds on that in a book they or something should, like that. Or they should look into wealthfactory.com. Like we yep. just had a, uh, a lesson on this to our people. Like we have one-on-one -on -one programs where we actually bring in the attorneys. We design the entire plan. We make sure it all gets implemented. We have other programs where the attorneys teach in a group. And I got to tell you, our attorneys are media trained, great presenters. I'm just like phenomenal guys, right? And then you can actually meet with our associates to implement it once it's taught. So that's what we do as a company. Mm -hmm. So wealthfactory.com is probably the best place that you can go for that. Okay, so talk, talk to me about wealthfactory.com. Like I think it's pretty, pretty interesting and in like how you've kind of, I don't know, carved out the space with what you're doing. Because typically I think in the financial services, and we talked about this offline a little bit, people service the people who have like lots of money. Uh, those with less money don't really get the opportunity to, to work with financial advisors and stuff right. like that. And there's like, you have an, this education component, which I think is really compelling. So just walk me through like, I guess how and why you created it and, and, and why it stands out. When I was 22 years old, I was in New York shadowing this really well-known financial advisor. And he went into a Rockefeller style family office to present a strategy, which meant 
around the conference room table were attorneys, accountants, investment advisors, you know, fiduciaries, risk management team, all hearing his strategy, making sure it was going to work for the client. And I was like, this is amazing. You had to be worth $50 million to be, you know, working with this firm. And then I was like, wait, these guys are operating on a totally different level than what everyone else is getting out there and, and mid, you know, mainstream American business owners that reinvest all their money back in their business. So I went from excited to pissed off pretty quickly. And in a naive entrepreneur type of way, I said, I'm going to build that for the entrepreneur. I'm going to build that for people that have good incomes, but not necessarily high net worths, because that's who I am. That's what I, you know, I was 22. I'm like, shit, my whole town, if we put everybody together, we might not have enough money to work with this firm. So I decided to build that. It took me 10 freaking years because I had to go through a vetting process. It's nine months minimum to get into our network. They have to fill out a 42 question application. They, they meet with us once a month for that nine months. They have to come to our three-day workshop. They have to be approved by everyone else on the network because all those guys are going to communicate with one another and we don't own their businesses. We don't own their businesses. We just pay them when someone pays us to do the second opinion on everything that's, that they're doing. And if something is broken, educate them on what they need to do to fix it. And they can actually implement it for them if they want them to do it. So it's like we do a lot of the heavy lifting with people. We save them a whole bunch of time, a whole bunch of money. And they get more done in a year with us than most people ever get done in 30 years in their financial life because it's so organized and coordinated. Go to the website, wealthfactory.com. Like we're offering a few different things. Yeah. Like you have like, you know, a publication, you have like this, you know, it looks like obviously workshops. So kind of what did you, like when you built this out, like what was the first thing you built, like you, you started with here to kind of like carve out that space in, in this industry? We started with just, it was called Ingenuity, spelled with an E, Ingenuity with my other partners. We built a study group for financial guys. And then we just did one-on-one -on -one client work and we charged a fee and got commissions. Mm -hmm. Smaller fee with commissions. And then we decided, look, we can help people out all day long, but if they don't have the right mindset, it almost doesn't matter. So we actually created a $20 a month membership way back in like 2002, 2003, like building stuff on C Sharp, like from scratch. It was... <laughs> expensive and cumbersome, but like we do, you know, weekly uh, or monthly newsletters, monthly interviews with great people that they could listen to daily emails. It was just kind of like that. And then we had, we had monthly workshops that they could come into these forums throughout the state of Utah at that time. And then we were getting enough traction with that, that in 2005, we launched these one day symposiums. They're called the curriculum for wealth symposiums. And the first time that we did that, it was more, hey, let's get all of our clients together. There's social proof of what they're doing. They can talk. We can educate them in one setting. We can get paid for that. And then we're not doing, you know, less than effective annual reviews if things are pretty much on track. Well, at the end of the first day, this guy came up to me named Dale and he goes, man, this changed my life. We weren't even thinking that big to think it was going to change someone's life. He goes, I'm going to be economically independent in the next year. And I was kind of like what you, you know, when a kid tells you they're going to be an astronaut, you, you know, pat him on the head and say, oh, that's really nice and cool. So Anyway, he got there in 362 days. So I was like, damn, we're on to something here. And then we decided to do longer events, like three days that we could really immerse people in and then upped our fees and stopped do dealing with commission-based products. Mm -hmm. And we just referred that out to our network. So we began really as a one-on-one -on -one organization, added yep. some events, added a membership to it. And then we evolved in the Wealth Factory sense to add more digital products, like step-by-step -step instructions for the business owner just starting out, how to create economic independence, how to scale their business, but then still remain really selective on who we work with one-on-one. -on -one. Um, we only take 125 people on per year that way, 
but we started writing five articles a month for Forbes, every three weeks for entrepreneurs. So we want to reach the masses. And then just the way we would scale is by being more strict on who we took one-on-one. And the three-day workshops we do are awesome because there's no, nobody selling, no one pitching, no outside speakers. It's A to Z of finance. Were they set? Were they not set? Where's their financial blind spots that could harm them? How do we alleviate that? What's their cash flow plan for economic independence? What's their economic independence number? What's their investor DNA so that we could really teach them how to be a better investor? What's their plan to enjoy life along the way and not just wait till, you know, 30 years from now or 65 or retirement or any of that kind of stuff. And then we teach them in those even how to scale their business. So those workshops, we are sold out. Our next three are completely sold out. Our August one's almost sold out. We did 14 of them last year. So that's the best way we get to know someone really well. They get to know us really well. They do phone calls with us before they come. And then we bring the right ones into our one-on-one program from there. That's awesome. So I, I want to switch real quick and talk about uh, your book. I, I don't think we have time for both the killing Savior cows, but I, I know people should check it out. I mean, it's, I, I, it's on my reading. It's on my to read list. I haven't read it yet, yeah. but I, I'm going to be reading it, but tell me about what would the Rockefellers do? I see it on Amazon. It looks like a, it's a thousand dollars for this book on Amazon. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, look, it's a thousand dollars for a couple of reasons. When we first came out with the book, we're charging 50 bucks. And then we'd get these, like, we want 100 books or 250 books. And I'd look up who's ordering it. And it was people that were, because we're still on our site, not on Amazon. And it was financial advisors. And I'm like, man, this is a dangerous book if it's in the wrong hands. Because what we're doing is showing people how the Rockefellers did things, which they get certain private placements. They get certain higher-end firms. And there are things that could be bastardized. So I said, I'm not going to allow just any financial person to give this book out. So it's going to be a thousand bucks. If they want to pay a thousand dollars, then they're already showing that they're willing to invest a pretty big amount and we'll, we'll get to know them. But uh, we just wanted to start distributing it ourselves so that we could protect and have it go to certified people if people wanted to implement the strategies. So the real premise of the book is Cornelius Vanderbilt had more money than the U.S. Treasury. He died within nine years. His first heir doubled the estate. So it's huge. But within 54 years from his death, the first Vanderbilt died broke. And, you know, going from the massive amount of wealth they had to Anderson Cooper being a Vanderbilt heir who made, who got no money from that trust, that is a pretty devastating story because they ended up having mansions that got torn down because no one could even pay for the fees on the taxes and all that kind of stuff. Yet the Rockefellers, the Rockefellers, when John D. Rockefeller died, that estate has grown. It's in the sixth generation. They still did $50 million to charity last year. So what were the differences that led to perpetual wealth? And it's really been my never fail me strategy I've been doing since 1998 that has been absolutely like my, I can count on it every time. Most people don't realize the game's rigged against them in the world of finance. This shows them the rules, shows how they could rig it in their favor, start earning interest rather than paying it, really, you know, have a situation where they can capitalize when the right opportunities come up. So I'm, I'm getting really good feedback on this book. It's a pretty exciting thing. And I'm happy to give people a download at no charge if they want to grab a hold of it. If they don't want to spend a thousand dollars, I'm willing to hook them up. That's awesome. And then do you like, is this something you distribute to like your, uh, your, I don't know, your members, your customers, that, that kind of thing. Uh, or yeah. is it, and, and was this, was this written for, for specifically for financial advisors or is it for the, the, no, the, this is the, for lay the person? Okay. This is for the lay person. And what's nice is this is one of the books that you don't even have to have your business started to benefit from. Okay, cool. Some of our other stuff is very much geared towards already being a business owner. So if people text 801-396-7211, 801-396-7211 and put WWRD in the subject line, they'll get a download of the book. 
And if they want a copy, I'm willing to purchase a copy for anyone. You just cover shipping and handling. I'll send it off to you and you can have a physical copy of it as well. Can you do that number one more time? I want to make sure I get yeah. this for the show notes. 801-396-7211. 801-396-7211. And it's a WWRD as in what would the Rockefellers do? And I know that number by heart because the first podcast, I gave the wrong number and some poor girl got a bunch of texts and she's like, what is this? What's going on here? So uh, I had to fix that up. Awesome. Okay, cool. Well, no, that's fantastic. Well, Gary, hey, I appreciate you being here on In the Trenches. I mean, this is such a fun look at a topic that could otherwise, I'm sure, be boring, but I, I yeah. find this fascinating, just the tip of the iceberg. So for those who are interested in learning more, which I'm sure there's probably a few of us, where do we go? How do we find you? Where do we sign up for your newsletter, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, wealthfactory.com forward slash WF resources is in Wealth Factory Resources. There's you know, some of my articles I write for Forbes are there. Some of our goodies like cash flow guides for entrepreneurs. There's just a lot of great resources that they could download and start to apply, get to know us and not have to write a check to get to know us. That's awesome. Well, Garrett, thank you so much. I encourage everybody who's listening to go check out wealthfactory.com and uh, appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Tom. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to In the Trenches. Your creative work doesn't stop here. Join the resistance, the small but growing army of entrepreneurs and artists putting a dent in the world at www.tommorkis.com. Never fight alone. Join the resistance.